Here we are in the shed again. It's Talk Shop, Writers Talking Shop in the original Portland. Today's guest is Michael Paternity. I gotta be honest. I kind of agonized over when to schedule Mike. And then once I'd scheduled him, I kind of agonized over how to go about asking him questions. And the reason for this is that I love Mike and I love his work. And talking to Mike and reading Mike's work uh, just always offers such pleasure and nourishment. And I really wanted to make our our taped conversation feel you know the same way and uh and so I was like paralyzed with worries about um and I told him this even uh about observer bias uh I didn't want to be taping our conversation and have that structure kill the magic of engaging with Mike's just you know wonderful wandering mercurial thoughts um I didn't want it to feel, um, you know, that, that way, I don't know, uh, if, if all of you can relate to this, but that, that feeling of talking about poetry in a college class, you know, like talking about a Wallace Stevens poem and, and you just feel like the poem is so great. You know, why do you need to talk about that? It's an amazing poem. And to, to to talk about it can feel so stupid and pointless and disrespectful to the, you know, to the original impulse of the poem, which was going after, uh, you know, something that can't be paraphrased simply. So anyways, when I have a conversation with Mike and, you know, when I read his work, which... um which includes his three books, Driving Mr. Albert, A Trip Across America with Einstein's Brain, and The Telling Room, A Tale of Love, Betrayal, Revenge, and the World's Greatest Piece of Cheese, and his collected essays uh, called Love and Other Ways of Dying. Whenever I encounter Mike's work, I feel like this great world of possibility opens up. You know, like the room that I'm in feels less dingy, Mike's sentences are, you know, are always rich. They're lush. Um, but I swear to God, never in an annoying way. Um, not to, not to name names, but I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. Like a writer like Annie Dillard, her lushness feels bullying and show offy in comparison. Mike's writing just feels lucid. And, you know, he, the richness that he, uses to describe the world really matches the world's richness or that's the way it always feels to me um and his writing feels inclusive he's saying these are things that we all should be talking about all the time and i like that i feel like when mike goes on an adventure in his writing he's really allowing us to to join him so a few things um when mike first came into the shed i handed him a photo I thought it might be an interesting place to start. I just handed him this photo. There's a, it's a bear falling through the air, falling out of a tree. You can't, you can't see the tree, but toward uh, a bunch of people in hard hats holding out like a fireman's net. And I asked him to describe it for me, um, but I didn't start recording for some dumb reason. So, I mean, that, that ended up being fine. So there was this kind of like warm up that we had. Um, but you'll notice that Mike later in, in the interview refers to the bear photo. So that's what he's referring to. And also you'll notice that, um, the interview starts with Mike just talking about Bilbo Baggins, of course, um, from the Lord of the Rings. And what you don't know is that I had just said something about how I envied how often he gets to travel to new, new places and meet new people and learn about different ways of living. I know that he is is fanatical and great about, you know, the scribbling part of writing that is like locking himself in a room and turning sentences inside and out. But he's also seems to be really good at the, like the extroverted side of reporting, talking to famous people or just interesting people and, you know, knowing how to, to tease out truth. So I really hope that this is the first of many talk shop conversations with Mike. He is a mensch.
I got some great listener mail after the Nicholson Baker podcast. Here's one. This is what uh, Taryn wrote from Brunswick. He is so soft-spoken and thoughtful. I could listen to his voice for 10,000 years. Plus, I love that bit about him picking books to read in order to better understand why certain novels are discounted at various points in time. Yeah, I like that too. That is so random, but in a completely fascinating way. Just ordered you and I. Sounds like the kind of shameless analysis of a writer's neuroses I could really dig. She goes on to say, thanks again for bringing these conversations into the world. They are so sustaining and inspiring and have definitely helped pull me back on track from time to time. So thank you, Taryn, for writing such a nice note. And the sound quality of Talk Shop has improved over the last couple episodes, which is great. And uh, and I have Sean Mushaw to thank for that. He is... Um, he is a he is a shaman of all things technical. So thank you, Sean, and thanks as always to Aaron McCullough, uh, aka Them Anatomies, for the music, uh, and thanks to Mike Patternity for um, taking the time to come to the shed. And here he is. You know, I was thinking about like the beginning of The Hobbit and Bilbo Baggins, and he's in like the Shire. He's in his perfect little Hobbit hole. And he's got his, you know, like his warm fire and he's got his little clay pipe and he, he is so psyched. He's so happy. Yes. He's alone in his little hole in this idyllic place. And then Gandalf and all the goofballs show up and they're like, we're going on a quest. We're going on a journey. Yeah. And he's like, you picked the wrong he's guy. Just, yeah, like, I'm that not, not that me. guy. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like that a lot of times, like. Yeah. I'm quite happy right here, right. you know, and so now I got to get on a plane and go where or, but, but half the time, to, half the time too, I've invented it myself. Like I've found the story and I've, mm-hmm. I've chosen it because, you know, hopefully in the bet and when it's kind of the best stories, it's chosen you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's quite different from, you know, even really researched fiction, you know, cause that's the, maybe that's the difference um, and what you're describing is um, I need to go out and find those stories and get those stories. Like that's the grist or that's the material. Um, and I've married myself in part to this form of whatever you call it, literary nonfiction or long form, but it relies on that material. So, so the line of dialogue that I would otherwise write, if I was writing fiction, I have to find it. I have to... I have to invent ways for them to say it. Yeah. And so that may come from, you know, going into someone else's world, like say a giant in the Ukraine and you keep showing up at this guy's house until he said it the way you are hearing it or Mm -hmm. you, or you think is going to work. So it's, it's, it's also not um, an equal exchange. There's a certain amount of story making and manipulation that's going on in the, you know, quote unquote reporting too. Mm-hmm. Manipulation only means that you're asking the question in a way, or you're rephrasing the question, or you're revisiting certain things because you need more. You need to work that part of their life in order to write the story you think you're wanting to tell. Mm-hmm. And, and in the moment, you don't really know. It's all very abstract. It's just like, where's the energy coming from? Where's the heat coming from? Like where where are their emotions, you know, and if they, and, and the first time you talk about the most difficult thing, people tend to glance over it very quickly. And sometimes they don't even realize that that's, you know, a hot spot. Um, so you're looking for that. And then you, you know, and then you kind of take them back to that once there's trust and once the conversation's begun to flow, because really you want them to talk about what they think is important to them and then have the opportunity to engage in a conversation where you redirect it back to what's interesting to you as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that seems essential that it is actually an exchange and it's not just, you're not just going and setting up a, a voice recorder in their, in their room. You're, you're actually like, you know, teasing things out of them and it has to do with what, what's important to you too. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the fun. I mean, maybe the fun part too is that there is, the need for that collaboration, you know? So it's like these stories, 
they they do exist if somebody shuts you down you know like i've been shut down by people i wrote a whole book about a guy who wouldn't really talk to me mm. about why he'd stolen einstein's brain mm-hmm. but then i had to figure out other narrative strategies yeah. to get around that or, yeah. or to make that funny yeah. like his long extended silences through as we drove across america through various um states you know with einstein's brain in the trunk of our car returning it to evelyn einstein um the only the, you know you then begin to use whatever other materials are being yeah. given to you and because that silence then becomes pregnant with something and you got to fill it with something yeah. on the page yes so i don't know i th- i i think the fun part though that you're like you're describing is it is it part of what is embedded in some of the stories are these adventures you know yeah. from out of that event adventure comes hopefully something bigger and that's, I think for me, I think what I'm jealous of is, is that in my, in my writing, I mean, and I'm not complaining, I, I love what I do, but I, but I also, I feel like I'm always going backward. I'm always like mining, you know, memories and I'm investigating some shimmering object from the past that I, that I want to kind of, you know, revisit and, and, uh, and, you know, figure out why it's shimmering from the past, you know? Mm -hmm. So this, the idea of like learning new things. And I, I, I was just, I was just listening to a podcast, you know, it was just like two comics talking about, you know, what makes good material. And they were saying that, you know, it's so important to just like keep engaging with the world in an active way and keep learning new things or else like your, your bits are stale. Like, Mm -hmm. and, and that made me think, okay, as a fiction writer, I'm constantly like going back, going back, back, back and, and thinking like, what was it about this dynamic that, you know, that was intriguing to me or just like had some spark and, and investigating that. But I'm not, I just feel like so often I'm not moving, moving forward or learning new things or engaging with the world in a way that could challenge my work or just, you know, so that's, that's something that I'm jealous of. I'm like, you're constantly going to new places really learning learning about different you know ways of living or different you know aesthetics yeah i think sometimes about quitting or doing something else and and that often is my kind of way to measure it is we're in december right now so at the beginning of the year not knowing what the year held in store could i have imagined that i went to these places and i saw these things and I met these people and at the end of the year no matter whether it's been a good year or a bad year a hard year or you know an ecstatic year there I I kind of make a mental notation like mm-hmm. had I otherwise been um, doing whatever like fill in the blank I would not have seen the following things or I would not have you know had these things challenge me you know like the when you go out and do a story about guns in america and you spend 10 days going to the scene of various shootings um in order to understand what a week or 10 days in america looks like from the other side of a gun you know you you can't imagine that before the year begins it first of all you're going to be doing it second of all you're what you're going to find when you go to san bernardino in the middle of that catastrophe Mm -hmm. and you live it you know as it's sort of unfolding as best you can. So, yeah, I think that's sort of what keeps me stuck to it. You know, because I, I do think of other, I, I guess I think of the form as very flexible. So mm-hmm. I think of, like, we've talked about this, how narrative is narrative. You know, it's not, I just don't see it as like fiction, nonfiction. There's plenty of fiction yeah. that is, you know, truer than than not. And there's plenty of nonfiction, at least in the past, that was, uh, has you know ha- has the mark on it that it was invented or otherwise much harder to do now if you're to be taken seriously or not have your career totally blow up because mm-hmm. in, in my case I've always had and been lucky to have fact checkers who come mm-hmm. in behind and they're they make sure mm-hmm. you know so but the but this idea like that there's a form and that you work in that form to me f- feels very stale and limiting yeah um, but on the other hand there are these other forms and if you were to call yourself a poet and you were to, and some of the best nonfiction I've ever read, it's been written by poets in poetic form, that would define your days differently than having to come back with these real stories or these real 
fairy tales or whatever they end up being or these real pieces of reportage um so i like i like kind of gearing through all all of it like i love the whimsy sometimes i love doing something you know otherwise very serious if there's an opportunity to profile a president i mm. will and have taken it you know so yeah. you so you you're, you are landing in all these other worlds and seeing a lot of things but i think the thing that you're saying about what you do is really appealing to me because you i don't know if it's remythologizing but you're taking the past and employing it through art in a way that makes deeper sense to you and that is always going to be have this immediacy so it's not just like oh you know you know what's going on in Aleppo today yeah. like I've never been that interested in kind of being an expert in any one thing and you know being up to the second on like what's happening in Burma but if I go to Burma I need to know what I need to know to write what I have to yeah. write um, and I'll track it but the but this idea that you would go back to this place revisit moments in whatever way you otherwise disguise them or you don't or you let the characters carry these moments away maybe even from the reality that gave birth to them and that that would be your calling that would be your mandate seems as important and, and as weighty as anything that you know I would otherwise be doing if I went in this very moment to report on you know Trump's America or whatever. I, I don't I don't see mm. like one is more worthy. I just see that there and some of the stories that I do anyway. I'm trying to get underneath to that universal thing anyway. But you're you're kind of you're you're able maybe more able to start there or to kind of think through it from that side. And I have to have if I'm doing these nonfiction pieces, I need to have the materials. I need to have the character. Yeah. I need to have the voice, somebody's got to be able to take me there. I've been thinking a lot about the constraints of domestic life, you know, versus, you know, other. Uh -huh. uh, and and so I'm curious, like, in learning new things about the world and, and learning new things about, um, about people in different places, do you have much occasion to bring things back into your family unit and and make changes or I mean I'm just curious about like you've written about like these idiosyncratic um you know kind of genius prophet chefs for example and like does that make any impact on the choices the Patrini Corbett's make <laughs> with their food or whatever you know like like what what um what impact does your work in the world have on your domestic life yeah some of it is is brief you know, like I remember Sarah was on assignment in India and she came back and she was making all these Indian dishes like uh, with great passion for like two <laughs> months. And, and it was awesome. And then we really haven't gone back to yeah. that. Or I profiled this chef uh, recently, Yotam Ottolenghi. So we had all the Ottolenghi cookbooks and a lot of the recipes are quite complicated and there are ingredients that are hard to find. But there was a while there where we went kind of through the motions of making, I mean, I know I have friends and who you know as well who who actually make those dishes. They're like really yeah. good <laughs> cooks and we're not. We just kind of pretend for a little while and then, you know, part of part of actually having those those books too with Autolenghi's are so beautiful. Like I was, I, I fetishized the book more than I would enjoy the food in the end probably like I w the book would be better than the meal itself mm. possibly yeah yeah <laughs> but um but the most recent example of this is I went to um I went to Nepal in the spring and I hung out with this uh Buddhist monk Matthew Ricard who has been called the happiest man in the world and it came during this t totally rancorous election season it ca came at a time when it felt like America was falling apart and it just seemed like the best possible way to try to understand how to put things in perspective and how to how to like ease my own mind was to go visit this monk who was in his um, hermitage like up on a mountain mm. in Nepal and for whatever reason he I was allowed to go see him and visit with him and he was incredible first of all and it was incredible going there and I brought home a lot of that, a lot of what Matthew had said to me. And Matthew's written a book called Happiness, another book called Altruism. Um, he has an amazing uh, book that he did with his father, who was a very famous French intellectual, who was like anti, he, he wrote about it like a, a lot of anti-totalitarian 
um, tracks against religion and government and never understood why his son left France with a very promising career in front of him in his 20s and disappeared into northern India where the Dalai Lama was and then found eventually the master that he, he, he spent a good part of his later years with who was in Nepal. Mm-hmm. So his father never understood this and, and they were brought together to have this conversation that was taped. The book is, is really amazing. Um, because it's they've never talked about it, so you, it's like a father and wow, a son coming amazing. to an understanding. Wow, but it's so also cool. yeah, two like real great intellects. And Matthew's thing that I love is he's not soft headed or self helpy about any of it. He hates mm. that about mm. when when Buddhism gets translated like that or when his his own belief gets translated like that. So he's very sharp and mm. um, and the angles inside of. Buddhism that become interesting, he's able to articulate really well. Mm. So if even if even as a thought experiment, if, if you were to say, okay, you know, nobody, no living creature should be killed, but the Dalai Lama himself says, if you have a gun and somebody's in your house uh, or is attacking your family, um, you'd be fully within your rights to mm-hmm. shoot that person. So the, the, it's always contextual. And, and Matthew is like so brilliantly nuanced in that that you could almost pose any question and have the whole thing turned inside out for you and, and, and have to rethink almost everything else, you know. And so definitely brought that back. And then this real interest in Nepal. And so when I had a, another assignment, basically like a little throwaway travel assignment to go to Nepal, I said, I said yes because we had the frequent flyer miles. And so we just brought everybody, and that's did you get to spend time with him again. He was he was uh, he was in India and in France when we mm-hmm. were there. Mm-hmm. We went to the monastery, mm-hmm. and uh, it was pretty cool. It was pretty amazing. But but so there are times where I, we that's very real for us. If we have the frequent flyer miles and we think we could maybe work it, mm-hmm. um, we try to do that. So we bring the kids into the stories that we're working on or the places that have turned us on or that we that's think could great. be. It doesn't happen that often because of schedules and because it's yeah. it does cost money in the end. But wherever it's possible, we always like that's a, always been a goal. And and you were you were talking about what you brought back from Nepal before you took the family there. Mm-hmm. Like how how could you describe that? Like what you what you brought back from that story and that you know your time with him. I had definitely had that I had that weird experience that I think maybe everybody has where. Up on this mountain, there was nothing but him, and I brought some books, and and I couldn't sleep because I was jet lagged. So mm. I spent the day with him, and then that's when I would otherwise have been sleeping at home. Yeah. yeah, and then I'd be up all night. So I felt like so deeply in love with words and stories. So you brought some I, books that I was reading. To read. Oh, yeah, wow. so I was reading his yeah. books, but then yeah, I had yeah. so much time. I was yeah, like. Yeah. I wasn't sleeping at all. Yeah. So that kind of poured into this encounter as well. And then and, and then what I was really learning from him was how to manage your own mind and to to watch your own thoughts in this in the name of some sort of happiness. You know, his, his whole thing was like, first of all, I'm not the happiest man in the world. Like I know happier monks than I am. Like that's <laughs> it really bugged him that he like the, You the, think the, I'm the, happy? You should see <laughs> Ed. Yeah. But they had they had they had brought him and some other monks um, to the University of Wisconsin some years ago, and they they hooked them up to electrodes and studied their brain waves, and and they they did they tried to the Dalai Lama and Matthew in particular are really interested in the scientific benefits of living a Buddhist life, meditation, vegetarianism, mm. um, what benefit, what sort of loving kindness emanates from these practices and and can the world be fed by this is this an antidote to our intractable issues with each other so part of you know part of what i i not maybe very successfully but what i tried to do while there was unburden myself of all of these you know existential crises that we were talking about like what am i doing here why why am i not the writer i think i should be or how can you know like am i doing the right thing for the moment that i'm in I tried to just totally unburden myself of that and live inside of his world and then inside of these books that I had. And, and it was incredibly liberating, you know? I came back, like, kind of able to breathe and mm. 
And I, you know, I kind of held on to it for a while. And then, but now it's kind of, it's like another little stream that's running sort of through me. I don't, mm. I don't know if it's like a river. I don't know if it commands yeah. me the way I would like it to, but, but it's part of me and there'll be some other way that it gets fed or, you know, and his books sit right by my bed. You know, I'm mm. constantly like picking them up at bedtime for the one mm. page and a half that I read before I pass out. And even if it just floats through my head right as I'm dropping off, it's amazing because I, I never, ha- I've never had that before I met him and I've never would have gone to it probably thinking wrongly that it was maybe more self-helpy, you know, mm. than it, than it, like how to be happy. It's like, what? You know, I don't, I, I don't want like the five step guide to being happy. I mean, I, I, I want it resolve. I want to understand how you resolve yourself with the life you're given in all of its glory and tragedy to find something that feels like an equilibrium. Yeah. And you can call that happiness, but it's, you know, it's words are so constricting that I'm not sure that's what I'm really even after is like happiness. I mean, I'm not sure what that is. I just know like when it's going well, life, it's family work and, you know, finding moments of joy that, that are temporary, you know, Mm -hmm. and that was the other thing that he talked a lot about is the temporariness of, of all of it. So that great joy is going to be followed by something else. It's just inevitable. It's just a question of how you deal with it and how you accept it and what amount of weight you give it and then how you pass through it. You know, that was one of the things they did in the test too. They put headphones on these monks who'd meditated for a long time and they'd like play a jackhammer. And then in the other control group, it would just be people like us and they'd play a jackhammer and like you and me, we would freak out. We'd be agitated. Yeah. Be agitated, but way past the point of the jackhammer actually playing in our head. Yeah. And the monks would be, it would bug them. You know, yeah. they would, they'd blink, but then they would just let, totally let it go. Yeah. So like trying to figure out how to pass through, you know, is, yeah. is one thing I brought back. And this reminds me of, uh, of the through line of your work. Can you, can you talk about that? Like, what do you think you, in, in most of the stories that you write, what are you after? Because we talked briefly about your new project. The is it Ad, Admiral Peary? Mm-hmm. Um, Peary in the North Pole. Yeah. So what is the what's the through line? Like what is the what do you think you're going for every time? Wow. You know, it it kind of circles the same things for me, especially early on. It it really circled um, hard around death and immortality. It circles around God, but not like a certain kind of God, but like something, some animating force and how people allow that into their lives or how they conceive of it. So I've mentioned this before, but I do, yeah, I always ask, you know, eventually if someone believes in God or what, who their God might be. It's not like a, it's not even like a serious, reverent, precious question. It's just like, it's just a, it just comes up usually organically. I'm never forcing that, but it comes up and the answers can be really great. Cause mm-hmm. if someone says they don't believe in God and then they describe why, I mean, then they're, they're describing their own belief system in the end. It just becomes really fascinating to me, but I'm, I'm really interested in people's creativity too and how that saves them in some way from the monotony of life and how it, how it in some ways creates a, reprieve against time so timelessness is like really interesting to me and how to get there how to live like in those moments and how to extend them and writing writing as you know allows you to do that like you can meditate uh you feel like an absolute insane person half the time you know like compulsive obsessively going back to a moment and trying to perfect it on the page or bend it in a way that makes it work for you or what you're trying to to, to say about that moment but it's incredible when you're in it and, the, and and you're in that flow and you've lost track of time and and then it's just and then in the end it's just a bunch of words and and that's that represents that time you spent there mm-hmm. i mean it's just a cairn you know that yeah. represents some place where you spent some time whether there's any profundity 
or magic or poetry in it is like not yours to, to really judge, yeah. you know? So you, then you just keep moving, keep living, leaving those little stone piles wherever you've been. But it's like, that is interesting to me and in how people make those monuments to, to art, you know? I'm really interested in that, how people's brains work and mm. where they're trying to go and how they how they parse it out in the end, like what the purpose is, you know, it's really more metaphysical, which is kind of hard when you're, you know, called in to talk to sometimes, you know, you'll accept an assignment or you, you go somewhere and you think this is going to be the direct opposite of anything that, Mm. you know, where I really want to be, or this isn't going to be particularly deep or you've written someone off before you met them. And oftentimes it's just as powerful when you're entering into it pessimistically and yeah then, uh, and then make a discovery or yeah okay. the capability of people across all spectrums and and it, it's incredible to me like mm. you can talk to someone who never went to school like uh many years ago i did um met this rebel in the jungles of burma who was at the end of his life he'd had five sons they'd all gone to war and died it was and and he was in this isolated place and his house was lit by candlelight the night I went there. And he, he just was like some weird voice of ancient wisdom, but, but it was so full of kind of hatred Mm -hmm. that he turned into a sublime belief system. And it was aimed directly at the Burmese government and the people who'd killed his sons and, he was incapacitated at that point himself because he was so old. I don't even think he could walk. And he was like, I would, I would crawl to the front line to take a bullet from them to, you know, to, to become one with my sons. Like if I could do it and he spent his entire life fighting. And so from that guy to, you know, the most, sometimes even the most fatuous personality, or you think they might be the most fatuous personality, like a celebrity, uh, which I've, assiduously avoided for many years like doing any of those kinds of profiles and I've been really surprised that you know if you get to a real place with somebody it's real it doesn't well, matter well that's I mean that's the talent that you have is to get, I mean that's essential and it must be to get to that place where you can actually interact with their humanity instead of like doing what they're probably used to doing which is interacting with media who are just after the like the salacious bits or whatever mm-hmm. instead of actually treating them like a human being and uh and empathizing with with them and like finding some real place mm-hmm. that I mean that seems like the talent that you have but you're doing, I mean, you're doing the same thing right now. I mean, it's not, a, I don't even know if it's a, t- it's just a conversation. I don't even, I think it's a real talent when I read people and I know like what the parameters were, like you have X amount of time with somebody that, and when that's happened to me, that I find that really nerve wracking. Like so hard. you have this amount of time and you almost feel doomed by the fact. And the first couple of times I did that, where I just knew I was on a timer, I just, I kind of blew it, you know? And now if I get put on a timer like that, and I really try to avoid those kinds of stories, but, you know, with a celebrity profile, oftentimes it'll be like, they'll negotiate it without it having anything to do with you, obviously. And it'll be like, you get three scenes or you get three engagements or you get two engagements or they don't, you only have time for one, but it'll be a little longer. And if it goes badly, then you've got, nothing you know so I feel like that kind of work isn't something that I like so much but that if you go in it kind of disregard all of that yeah and just do it the way you would otherwise have done it just begin the conversation somehow yeah sometimes it's remarkable how much Mm. you can get like in 90 minutes of from someone who's said it all or thinks they've said it all. What's the starting point? Like, or maybe even just like give us an example of someone who, you know, maybe was guarded at first. I think uh, this actor Javier Bardem didn't have any interest in, in being profiled. And, and I was asked to profile him because um, I had written about Spain and he was in Madrid and they wanted somebody who could, who understood what was happening in, in the moment because Javier was getting really political. And he had, he'd messed up his back 
And so, and then we went to his sister's restaurant. So they closed the restaurant and we just sat in the restaurant, but it wasn't like whatever we were, were going to do got whittled down. And I knew it was, you know, it wasn't going to be like three different meetings and for, you know, I'm going to go boating with him and Penelope Cruz somewhere, you know, it wasn't like that stuff, which is all again, negotiated by publicists and, and manipulated in whatever way yeah. they need and want to, depending on what they're trying to put out there or yeah. what the movie is. But the whole thing with him was it's like he doesn't want to talk about these things, you know. And so so we just started talking and hanging out. And I definitely we talked about what mattered to him. And I think he just got comfortable. And yeah. then we were talking about all the things that were on the list that we weren't supposed to talk about. And and what it really what I really thought was incredible the thing that I, the one thing I took away from that was um, something he told me about a scene he did in the movie Beautiful, which is the darkest uh, I haven't film. Seen that one. And he's yeah. amazing. I think he got nominated for an Academy Award and he was sitting there and he, I think he's maybe a slightly depressed guy. You know, he comes from that, that mood and how he acts and, and how he is. But he, he was so full of self loathing about this role that he played in this one moment in the movie which is the climax is the most powerful moment where he's on a bed and he's seeing ghosts and he's having this emotional breakdown. And he was describing that a Spanish actor in the tr- tradition, like the grand tradition of Spanish acting goes to the theater, play plays the part, but you're like very much supposed to go home. You, you hang up the costume, you go home, you kiss your wife, you kiss your kids. Um, you have some food with them you don't carry anything uh, of it um, once you cross the threshold of the, the theater and you leave it and you unburden yourself completely. And when, when you go back into the theater, you, you're, you inhabit that role. You leave the rest of yourself at the door to your home, Yes, you know? And, and, th- and this is like something that's like in the tradition of great Spanish a- acting that actors really pride themselves on. And he was saying that in this scene, he needed this emotion and he'd hurt his back in the filming of it. So he was, and he was breaking up with this long time um, live in lover that he'd been with for like a decade. And he said that he got to the scene and he imagined all of the pain that he himself was in with the breakup of this um, relationship. And uh, he didn't take painkillers for his back. I think he said, and it is an incredible scene. It's incredible, mm. and it's totally you. Th- you feel it. It's mm. the character. Yeah. And he's just like he was like that, that is me at my worst. Like I I work so hard to build these characters, and to know how and to find how they might respond emotionally. And in that scene, it's me. Yeah. It's just me, and I I'm not the character. You know. And of course, the academy award people were like bravo nomination because it's incredible but like to to me that was like really i don't know it's just really like this incredible revelation um not only that it showed just the amount of work that it takes to layer those characters and to do something really unusual you know whether it's even just like a haircut um like in no country for old men or whatever it is like you know he's he and he works with this old acting coach when he gets a character so it's like from the minute he knows he's going to play a character, he's building that character. and He'll build a character for like months or even wow. a year before he shows up. So it's kind of the anti-method. It's not using emotions from your past. Yeah, the and it's not Daniel Day-Lewis like right, right, going right, as like Abraham second. Lincoln to yeah. you know get a beer after <laughs> shooting. Yeah, you know, right, it's right. like it's like no, it's it's over. I don't need to be. I don't need to do this. I don't need to be this person. But it's just deeply imagining the reality of that character while you're working. That's that thing about transportation or something that we're all trying to reach, like when we sit and write or yeah. act or paint, you know, the, the right photograph, like the photograph you just show. I mean, it's like, what is what what is that bear falling out of the sky? I mean, it doesn't make sense, but it it in the moment that you're looking at it, it's you're completely taken into it. You're, you don't sort of exist anymore as anything but a curious person trying to find edification. You referred earlier to the books that you brought to Nepal, but I'm, I'm just curious also, like, 
What would be an example of a book that you have found great solace in during your life? What 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 would what's an example of a book that that you just feel so grateful exists? Oh man. Different books in different moments. You know, like early on I was really into um I wrote my uh at college I wrote my senior thesis about Camus the Stranger and The Sun Also Rises comparing Marceau and Jake Barnes uh, as sort of existential heroes mm. um, who'd given themselves over utterly to their senses in some mm. ways. Uh, I mean, Jake was trapped by his own inability to fully consummate his mm. sensual life mm-hmm. from this war injury. But those characters posed these interesting questions for me at the time. And those books I found compelling at the time, you know, less, much less so now. And then there was a moment, too, where, I mean, I think the first time I ever read Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse, I just thought, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I'm ever going to, I was, I think it's that feeling, I don't think I'm ever going to read anything ever again that's anything like this. And that I'm never going to read sentences like this again, unless I read her again, or I read this book again. You know, the books that That you reread. That was an important one for me, too, yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny. I love that feeling, and I don't know if this is exactly what you're talking about, What, but I felt that way about To the Lighthouse, reading something and having the reaction that you you can't you can't even imagine another uh, tack to take on a story. It just feels like there is no other story for a minute. Like, mm-hmm. you're just, like, it's so, so um, immersed, and, you know, there's just that feeling of lucidity and and connection mm-hmm. you know that's like well there's there is no other story than this than where i am right now in this yeah, yeah. it's awesome i mean i think i felt like too in some of those years of being assigned work that when you when you did get lost in it it was it felt remarkable because it felt like you were working so hard like just to get the homework done otherwise yeah so i remember reading like the book of laughter and forgetting the first time and thinking the shape of the chapters moving in shorter takes, the rhythm of that and the mix of the political with in the narrative, I just found it was like a revelation to me. And then, you know, I'm trying to think even just recently, I think uh, I can be astonished at a lot of different books, but, but I was reading at the, the recommendation of our mutual friend, Brock Clark, um, Muriel Spark. And I was sort of like, this is really... Uh, again, this is, these are just pure entertainments. Oh, there's yeah. like not a, there's no like uh, over stylizing. It's really like there are moments, in fact, where, where as a writer, I was thinking, this is where you do like a short meditation on whatever. Or like it's sort of a little bit like Graham Greene, like mm. more or less in a lot of the books, stripping out all of that stuff mm-hmm. and either narrativizing it or just completely leaving it off and leaving those spaces in the narrative where, that you fill in with your own thought about it rather than that Victorian impulse to completely, uh, you know, own and, uh, over stylize, uh, an idea. Yeah. Um, and so like to just be in the presence of something so otherwise opposite and seemingly so frivolous and yet so interesting in a way, Yeah. like how can you tell a really good story in a hundred pages that just that you could read on a flight mm. and think, wow, that was really satisfying. Mm. But I also read, I read um, this book when I was in Namibia in the fall, um, The Lost World of the Kalahari. And there was some writing in there that was like as good as anything I've read. What is that? Is that a contemporary book? It it was written in the 70s, I think. And it was written by this guy who went in search of the the Kalahari Bushmen, because at that point uh, they'd been forced into uh, the desert, into the Kalahari, mm. and really for their own survival, were not they were not findable. Yeah, um, and so he he goes in search yeah, of, whoa. and yeah. it's it's kind of a it's a messy book. It's like in its it makes his travel log with these bigger metaphysical questions. And it's kind of a mishmash. It's a little bit of a car wreck, but it's but it. But some of it is just so pure and kind of incredible. Mm. I mean, it, and so yeah, I, sometimes a, a book will leave a lasting impression because you're having an experience that the book is deepening. Mm. 
can you describe yourself as a as a 10 year old like what i want to i want to know a little bit more about like you early on 10 year old my i think 10 was maybe like my best year ever like the number one year good, good year yeah i was really like uh i was a swimmer that's that was a big swimming year for me 10 i broke my finger like it uh hitting a wall in one race and then like i remember that like that season like with my fingers taped together and eating a lot of popsicles after swim meets i have three younger brothers so like at 10 that would have been my big part of my world mm. like what was going on in our backyard and yeah. our neighborhood and in the woods and um, we had this family from Australia move in, the Warhams, and they... Move into your house. They moved in next door. Oh, okay. And this was in the Connecticut suburbs of New York City. And these guys moved in. And I do remember this. It was the middle of the winter, and I think I was 10. And they came... It was three boys and a girl. And the boys came... And they uh, the boys, there was one older than I was, and then otherwise they matched up with us. Um, and the boys came running out in the snow. They were barefoot. And the boy who was my age, Francis, just started climbing a tree, not like by the branches, but like a monkey. And I was just gripping it around the trunk. Yeah. Just like, just like <laughs> yeah. Like it was incredible. And, um, and I just was like their presence in our world, wow. like changed a lot of things. Yeah. Like just the way, they went about it and they were constantly they were th- their brawls were huge like when they got into brotherly brawls mm. they were bigger than our brotherly brawls but then they their like fierce connectedness mm. was like a, another thing to behold so yeah. so i'd count that in there and then yeah i was sort of a dutiful like i had my paper route and i was like kind of dutifully trying to be i remember like a very pointed comment from my fifth grade teacher who said some days you are here and some days you're not here at all. Mm. <laughs> wow. Wow. I do remember that really. And I would not um, swear. So I lost um, my girlfriend mm. at the time in fifth grade. She was just like, you're too she, yeah. milk toast. You just, yeah. yeah. She's like, yeah. if you can't swear, I mean, yeah. it's just, you're not a bad boy. Yeah. So your sense of self was coming from like, do you feel like your parents were, were steering you or guiding you? Was it, do you feel like as a sibling, like being in, being the oldest brother was, was a big part of it? Or what, what, what was it? Like what, what compelled you not to swear? What, what got you into sports? Yeah, uh, I think all, I mean, think all of it. Like I was, you know, a huge <clears throat> Yankee fan. I was, I also grew up Catholic, which, you know, in, in the end, once I left, home you know for to go to college i never went really back to church but i but like no matter where i am in the world especially like if you're in europe and i see a cathedral like i'll always i love going inside huge churches Mm -hmm. and not i'm not praying or anything i'm just like there's something about the space uh, i i think is incredible so but at the time i think that trying to figure out religion was a big thing because I didn't I just was baffled by a lot of it and I was an altar boy with my my second brother um and we would serve like this early Sunday mass and we were horrible I mean I was trying to be so good at the job but my brother was he didn't even pretend he just yeah he hated it he didn't there was one point where you're supposed to genuflect and pass like little silver plates to each other in front of the and he never remembered them or he just would forget to pass it. It was just like he was yawning the entire time. I was just like, this is not, I mean, we're trying to be like little angels and this isn't working out at all, no. you know, and like we're kind of like bickering under our breath with each other. And I was just like, I hate that. Like, I hate this. We're kind of doing this like on display up on this altar. So I don't know. I think maybe there was some confusion around that mm. that played out later, you know, like trying to figure out what that was or what the kabuki of it was it was just felt like this huge kabuki like all these statues and this guy on a cross and it's it's not that i didn't want to believe the story but and I, at some point i started really realizing like this is a story it's like th- a great story mm. but so yeah when do you think that 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 awareness arrived or just a know. shift when did that shift happen when you start to see the world as stories, yeah, that that was there really early. I remember being in the like locker room at swim practice, and Todd Walters, who was this hairless, 
10 year old was was talking about like how he was having sex with his girlfriend and you know you're just like and i totally believed it i was like i don't even what yeah what are you talking about like and i remember sort of mentioning it to my mom and she was like oh he's just that's just he's he's just just telling telling a story story. and it's like oh yeah so does every story have to be a lie or like you know and i started really thinking about it like and then it's the Bible story. So are the Bible yeah. stories all lies? You know, like, well, how does this, what is a story? Yeah. That really, I mean, really, <laughs> like, kind of in the most innocent way, which is what I'm still asking myself <laughs> today. Like, what, what is it? What about, um, can you, how would you describe yourself at, like, 24? Like, what, what could you say about Pattern Idiot 24? 24, I was at University of Michigan in the MFA program writing fiction. So I was much more, I had like this very dim idea that I would want to write someday. I didn't write much in high school. I worked a little bit for the newspaper and I took a couple of creative writing classes at, at Middlebury um, from some teachers that we both know in common. Mm-hmm. And then I had gone to New York and done it, uh, got this advertising job and did a year in advertising and knew I hated it. And then had gone to Cape Cod and started working for a newspaper and, and then went from there to that MFA program. So I think at that point I was really thinking for the first time, like, how do you, how do you do this? How do you kind of do it and live inside of it? How do you make a living at this? Like, I want to, I want to really do this, but I'm not sure what, f- form it'll take or how to get there. I just need like the tools. I need to know how, what a narrative, how a narrative works. Mm. And so writing fiction was really amazing. And, and being in that environment, uh, the workshop environment and having a chance to look at it, it all, all the work that came in. And I, I, my comments on people's stories were always, you know, like two single space pages of like yeah, yeah. really deep analysis and, and then I'd get back like a paragraph from somebody and I'd feel like, wait, are we doing this for real yeah, or is this yeah. just a joke? Like, yeah. I mean, are we, why are we here if we're not like in it, like really doing this? And I was so I've, grateful for the other folks in my MFA program who were just like, who it, it just seemed so real and vital. You know, uh-huh. I was like, I want to be in that delusion with you <laughs> so, so much. Yeah. I felt, and it did feel like a delusion because I, I've, you know, never felt I had um you know I don't feel like there's some gift or something that I I know I know of writers who were in my workshop at the time I think thought they had the gift and maybe even some really early success and now you know maybe not not even doing it anymore but I never really thought about it in those terms I just sort of thought how do you where where's the place where this makes sense to me like in the Venn diagram of my own life because I had a great teacher there who became a really good friend but his life as a fiction writer was one that I was that's part of being an MFA program too as you begin to question yeah. the light like yeah. I, I love that that I got to see intimately the lives of those writers and ask myself is that the life that I really want and I wasn't sure that that was exact I, I did have a real drive or impulse to kind of be out thrown out into the world and try mm-hmm. to see and bear witness to something bigger than my own imagination sometimes it seems like you were exposed to a lot in those three years out of college just like very efficiently you went from like advertising that didn't seem right to you and then journalism and maybe that did seem right to you in some ways but you wanted to like get a voice and learn more about narrative and so then you're going into fiction writing yeah so yeah it, wow that's because the I, newspaper stuff i loved but it was but i did have a i did have a real sense pretty quickly like this if this is all that this is like if i can never make a long sentence if i can never try to be virginia wolf yeah then i don't get it like what's but but everything else about it was incredible mm. because you're in the little town i was in harwich and then i was in Provincetown and I and like the stories were incredible the characters were the people who lived there were incredible I mean some of the most memorable reporting to this day goes back to being in Provincetown and sitting at a selectman's meeting where the town manager McNulty 
challenged the head of the selectmen and there was a the literal like brawl and the police chief jumped on top of the selectmen mm-hmm. and, and the town manager and separated them and and it turned out that half of the select the elected selectmen were sleeping with the other ones and so and i my you know, you're just sitting there as a reporter week in and week out or whatever every three weeks at their meeting watching it all play all these human relationships play out through all these issues that that were important in provincetown but the way that they lined up with each other had everything to do with this like emotional underneath and this other world that they were they were living in mm. um it's awesome I, but i would i i feel like i would have absolutely loved that but also felt frustrated by like you know stories can't contain that like i mean a story from yeah, the you paper can't, you can't really yeah. do so oh totally so you're i mean in in a real pronounced way you're probably like realizing the limitations of that that kind of journalism right? all the like secrets that can't be yeah reported or or said out loud you know i think that's when my writing life felt more integrated was when i either allowed myself to go there in the writing of these sort of nonfiction stories or fables or essays or whatever they were. I just let myself use that material if it came to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried to be really honest with the people that I was engaging with and ask questions that brought that out too, like their deepest, some of the deepest stuff. Yeah. And hope that they would trust me with it or in some cases were angry when I was when I did use it. You know? There was a death threat, wasn't there? Wasn't there a... What on Cape Cod? Yeah. Yes, there yeah. was. There was a fisherman death threat and a drug dealer death threat. I had two I had, that was the only time I've ever had death threats. Did it come by mail? What was the how did how did that arrive? One was a phone call <laughs> okay. to the newsroom. Okay. And the editor the editor in chief <laughs> like passed the phone to you? Yeah. Okay. No, the editor in no, chief no. was on his phone. Okay. And listened. The newsroom was like, you know, it was like a very small room full of, you know, twelve people, um, in Orleans and if you had a call and you needed him to get on, you would like motion from over at your desk. And I remember Greg O'Brien got on and was listening to this guy saying, if you do any more, they were basically finding seals uh, all mutilated washing up on the shore in Provincetown. And the fishermen would sometimes cut up a seal if they found it in the net. They just didn't, it was like sure. eating all their fish and yeah. stuff. So it was like, but so people thought it was a cult or whatever. So I did like a story about it. Yeah. And this fisherman was like, you're going to you're going to yeah. end up like the seal sort of <laughs> they sort of described yeah. graphically how yeah. it was going to happen and yeah. i had the editor on with listening and no idea who it was but <laughs> i don't know somehow i don't know why it was so important that the editor and chief be on just in case i did get sliced up yeah yeah he would have been able to verify <laughs> so can you can you describe your your current project a little bit but the book, just like the book yeah thing. the book yeah well it's it's a st- this story off told about Peary and um, his attempt to get to the North Pole. And what I'm really interested in is Peary and his wife and his colleague, Matthew Henson, who was African-American, and how that worked. Um, because he never would have gotten there without Henson. And uh, there's a question about whether he really ever got there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so you had this, this inside of this um, attempt to get to the pole was all of uh, this sort of symbolism about American exceptionalism, about American masculinity, when in fact, you know, again, he wouldn't have gotten there without his wife um, and all mm-hmm. that she had done to get him there. So I, I just think it's like a really um, harrowing story about perseverance but also about gender and race. And I just want to try to figure out a way to tell it differently than mm. it's been told in order to get at that mm. and kind of point that stuff up. Sounds awesome. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, right now it's a bunch of disparate thoughts in my head. Do you, so between, you know, stories, uh, magazine stories, are you are you like needing to carve out time to do to work on that book? Or yeah. how, does, how do you balance? It's not a real charted thing because you don't know what a deadline is going to look like on the magazine side or where you're going to get sent to or where you're going so you don't always know that uh, way ahead of time so i can't just say january is going to be the book 
I, but I'm trying to do that more. Yeah. Um, but I'm also just trying to continue on as I'm doing other stuff. You know, the way we all do is like work multitask and keep yeah. working the project and don't let it totally fall away because in the past that's really been hard. Um, it's hard to come back to a book and read your way up to where you left off and not remember at all what the spirit or energy was that had carried you that far. You know, yeah. like it's just, it would be so much better to just, you know, lose yourself in a year and a half of work and, you know, see, and then maybe step away and let it cool do some stuff and come back. But the way it's worked for me is it's really like, I've got the two jobs. Yeah. So, and they're both writing jobs. Yeah. yeah so thank you so much, Mike, for oh, spending some time this here. Was awesome. And, yeah, thank you, Lewis. Yeah. That's a wrap. Our 20th episode. Thanks, as always, to Aaron McCullough, a.k.a. Them Anatomies. Thanks to Sean Mushaw for the sound. And thank you, Mike Paternity. Write me at lr at lewisrobinson.com with any questions or comments. And see you next time.